Since the first human genome was sequenced, our approach to discovering new mutations associated with genetic disease has continued to evolve. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm speaking with Evan Eichler, Professor of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington. Dr. Eichler has written a Frontiers in Medicine article on genomic variation, comparative genomics, and the diagnosis of disease. Dr. Eichler, the spectrum of human genetic variation is wide, and not all mutations are equivalent with respect to their contribution to disease. So what are the classes of human genetic variation, and how do they each contribute to disease? The most abundant class of variation is the single nucleotide variation. And so this is just a simple change of a base from, let's say, an adenine to a thymine. So those are all called single base pair, and they are the most abundant. Above that is then bigger events. There's an entire class up to about 50 base pairs that involves gains and losses of sequences. So these are called indels. And then above that, there are structural variation events, so typically 50 base pairs and above. So these are bigger gains, losses, changes in orientation of sequence, translocation events, so when one piece of a chromosome breaks and attaches to another. And then at the very highest level, you have entire gains and losses of chromosomes. And so those are chromosomal aneuploidy events. Um, one that your listeners would be most familiar with are things like trisomy 21 or Down syndrome. And as you might imagine, size matters with respect to variation. So the vast majority of the single base pair substitutions have absolutely no effect. Most large chromosomal events are essentially incompatible with life. And that's why we only see certain chromosomes, the smaller chromosomes, in children with developmental disabilities. For the ones intermediate size, so these structural variation events, the jury is still out in terms of their contribution, but the general data suggests that they're more impactful. And the reason for that is essentially large events can have larger impact in terms of how a gene is expressed, how it is regulated. Traditionally, the discovery of genetic variations has relied on methods that inferred the mutations, such as short-read sequencing techniques. Can you tell us a bit about those sorts of techniques and some of their shortcomings? Sure. So our group and many others over the last decade or so have developed methods to infer the presence of an inversion, a deletion, and insertion of sequence based on using short-read sequencing data. So short-read sequencing data, also known as next-generation sequencing, is the most common form of sequencing used even today in the clinic. You know, it's very good at detecting those single base pairs changes that we talked about, but it's fairly poor at detecting structural changes. And the reason for that is those sequences are actually mapped back to the reference genome. And we look for very specific signatures like read depth changes, or we look for discordancies in terms of how these map against the reference genome inferring from the patient. And we use this to deduce the location of a likely structural change, but we don't actually sequence it. And so that's a fundamental difference between using the data to find single nucleotide variants, where we actually see the actual change, versus using these short sequences to actually infer a structural change. And the reason that's problematic, particularly for structural variation, is that most of the structural variation mapped to regions are in the boundaries of regions that are fairly repetitive. And so what that means is that when you try to map short-read sequences, they don't map unambiguously to these areas. And so over the years, we've determined that, in fact, on the order of about 75% of all structural variation that occurs in an individual can't be seen by simply inferring from these short-read data sets. Recent studies have shown the importance of more comprehensive variant discovery techniques. What are the advantages of these new technologies, and how are they used clinically? 
Well, the advantages of some of these new sequencing technologies, some people refer to them as third generation, but they're more generally described as just long read sequencing. Long read sequences provide context. So they allow you to map across and through repetitive regions, allowing you to see the breakpoints of the structural changes as well as the sequence content themselves. So you can actually see expanded repeats associated with triplet repeat diseases, for example. You can see uh, structural changes in cancer genomes. You can actually see the actual sequence and knowing exactly the breakpoints in the content, you can infer consequence. So that's relatively new data. It's emerged over the last, uh, I would say, become popular over the last couple years. In terms of its use in the clinic, it's very limited right now. And then that's partly because it's a new technology. And it also then speaks to its drawbacks is that up until recently, the technologies have been very low throughput. So it takes months or it has taken months in the past to generate one genome's worth of data. And in fact, there's also high error rate because there's a lot of errors in that data. And only recently has that improved such that now multiple platforms are being developed that will generate both long read as well as very accurate reads. And then the last problem with it is that going with the low throughput is the high cost. The genome typically runs about $1,000 with short read sequencing data. But with the long read sequencing data, it typically costs more than like $15,000, $20,000. And those costs are going down, but they have to go down further for them to be used in the clinical setting. In fact, you say in your article that despite these technological advances, a large fraction of the genetic ideology of rare Mendelian and common complex diseases remains unsolved. Aside from cost and the time it takes, are there other barriers to be overcome? Well, throughput is a big issue, right? So that's the time. That really has to be overcome, I would say. The other thing, obviously, is the short-read technologies have been around for quite some time, you know, over a decade. And so a lot of methods have been developed to use this technology. A lot of basic research was done before it was applied to the clinical samples. And I think that's the same type of burn-in in terms of R&D that has to happen with the long reads. There's pitfalls with every technology, and being able to work those out before we start using them to routinely diagnose genetic disease, I think, is actually a wise thing to do. And so I think that kind of research and development that is happening in many labs you know, across the world is necessary before this becomes routine application in a clinical setting. Finally, what do you see as the future for genetic disease discovery? What are the next steps that we're going to see happen? Well, for me, it's actually, the view is pretty simple. I think we need to move away from discovering variation by aligning it to a reference. What I think should happen is that every patient's DNA should be its own reference. And that means instead of actually taking reads and aligning them to a reference genome, we actually build out the assembly of a human that has disease from telomere to telomere. And not only we just assemble each chromosome, but we assemble both the mother and the father's contribution. So that means thinking about a genome instead of being 3 billion base pairs, being 6 billion base pairs, where we actually can clearly see the chromosomes that were inherited at the sequence level, all the way from one end of the chromosome to another. So if we did it that way, I think our yield in terms of discovery, in terms of variation that causes disease, will go up substantially. And it basically makes assembly of genomes the first step before variant discovery. And I think that's actually the future. I think we're going to come to a point, hopefully not in the too far distant future, where we will sequence genomes entirely and we won't use or depend upon the reference system, at least in terms of discovery of variation. Thank you, Dr. Eichler.